fasting. I'm going to invite you to a season of fasting. The reason why we fast as Christians, we do it for a lot of different reasons for breakthrough. Um, is it okay if we're like at Starbucks right now? You okay with the chair thing? All right. I might, I might preach in a second, but right now we're at Starbucks. Um, but we fast because we need spiritual breakthrough at times. Um, one time in the Bible, um, Jesus' disciples got whooped. Like they were doing all the things that Jesus had asked them to do. They were doing the things that Jesus did. They were praying for the sick and casting out demons and doing all kinds of neat stuff. And then one day they just got whooped. Like the demonic forces just literally beat them up. You ever been beat up by the enemy? It didn't feel good. I mean, it's like you thought you had it together. Like you thought you knew the word of God. You thought you were clear on God's voice. And then the enemy just worked you over. And it didn't feel icky. We used to call it getting slimed. Have you ever been slimed, right? And, um, and Jesus says, you know what? There's only, some things only come out by prayer and fasting. Like this type, this type of warfare, you, just, you, just, you can't just come at it flippantly. So you need to pray and fast. And so, um, in my opinion, fasting looks different in, for the individual. Um, it, it's it's a, overcoming the flesh is the main idea. So we have, uh, we have fleshly desires. There's no way around it. We're, we're mind, body, and soul, and spirit. And our bodies are obviously a big part of who we are. Because they, you know, it gets our soul from point A to point B. Um, but the body is the number one thing that really gets us into trouble at times. And so the, the purpose of fasting is to actually put our body under control. Now, when Jesus was talking about fasting uh, with this spiritual warfare concept, he's very clear on, on how, to, how to do it the right way. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and they show men that they are fasting. Okay, this, okay, last, all right, Granite Creek, one of our, our, our mission statement is relationship, not religion. I hate religion. And the more that I'm around uh, Christian life, the more that I try to grow, um, the more I see the... Uh, I see people getting abused through religion, controlled, manipulated. Um, actually, there's a lot of insecurity gets bred through religion. Like you feel like a piece of trash, well, because the devil says you're a piece of trash, but sometimes you feel like a piece of trash because religion is messing things up. The reason why Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you know, when you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't make, don't make a big deal about it. Don't make sure that everybody knows that you're fasting because you'll get your reward. What's he saying? He's saying when you fast, don't be like, oh, poor me, look at my ribs. I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus. If you, if you would only suffer as much as I am right now, then you too would be at the same spiritual plateau that I'm at. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what Jesus is getting after. It's this, this, this is tit for tat, this spiritual competition. Look, we don't have time for that. I don't have the bandwidth for religion. I don't really care 
how spiritual other people think that they are. I want to connect with God. I want relationship, not religion. And so, um, so when I, like, like whenever I get whooped by evil forces, I know that I have to contend in the spirit. Then those types only go down. When I say those types, those demonic principalities only go down by prayer and fasting. And as a pastor of the church, you're not going to know when I'm praying and fasting over principalities and spiritual warfare. Because I just, I can't be like, oh, church, look at my ribs, I'm suffering for you, right? So, you understand what I'm saying? So when you fast for breakthrough in your life, um, don't talk about how much weight you've lost. Because that's not the point. You see what I'm saying? I hate it when people say, oh, I get a benefit because I'm fasting and I'm losing weight at the same time. Like, you've got your reward. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you've got your reward. You've already got it. Now, I am doing, I'm doing the Daniel fast. So my fast is actually a little bit different than what Jesus is saying. I'm actually, it's not necessarily like an intense spiritual warfare. I am getting my temple in shape. So I'm cleansing my temple. This is, I'm calling it a temple fast. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it ain't right right now. I'm a little wonky. And so uh, I'm going to do what Daniel did. I'm the Daniel fast. And so I'm doing 15 days of juice and then another 15 days of Daniel fast, which is fruits and vegetables and grain and twigs and branches and <laughs> things that don't taste good. And then, and then my, my, my goal is to get all the sugar that I have got ingested into my system over the holidays out right? And so if you're going to fast, uh, if you're going to do a food fast to get your body under control, um, I would say probably the number one thing is to get the sugar out. Now, I am doing um, not what Jesus is saying here. Again, this is a temple fast. This is for my body, not for necessarily for my spirit. Even though the, my spirit will have, uh, will, will take benefit of me getting my body in shape, you know, making my body my slave. My spirit will benefit. But um, I want to model to you, I'm going to be healthy. So I'm, I am going to show you my ribs. I'm gonna say, Look how healthy I am. Right? I want my reward now. <laughs> right? On the other stuff, I'll do eternity. But I'm not going to be boasting about that. I want to be boasting about how good I feel because I've decided to make my body my slave. Does that make sense? All right. So we cannot do spiritual competition stuff, right? You okay with that? We don't need that. But I do want to, you know, I want to encourage everybody to live a healthy lifestyle. And that's the number one thing I'm going after. And then number two, uh, breakthrough. But that one's different. Maybe we'll talk about that some other day. All right. And it is the new year, and it is a, it's a, great, it is a great time to start new habits and new uh, resolutions, and then there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it is okay to plan out and to say, I have a goal for 2017, and I want to even encourage you to write it down. 
you know, as we get into this message, I couldn't have picked a better book to do a New Year's Day message than Nehemiah. It is so weird how all these books are just kind of lining up. And it's got to be the Lord because I just don't plan that far out. Like, I just don't. You think that I planned this. I didn't. But Nehemiah is the perfect book for New Year's because it's all about new beginnings. It's all about starting over. It's about making a plan and seeing it through, being tenacious, fighting for what is right, not listening to negative voices and criticisms, not falling prey to violence, bodily harm, and not going into relationship with false spirits. It's a huge book. It's so cool. Nehemiah is somebody that we're going to revisit because as a, as a believer, if you are a believer, if you are on a, a spiritual path, uh, you, need to, you need to get to know Nehemiah a lot better. A lot of us, you know, whenever when we talked about getting worked over by the devil, right, spiritual warfare, when you lose, uh, the reason why is because we lack discernment. And Nehemiah is a man of discernment. We have a lot to learn from him. Uh, he kind of cuts out all the fluff and gets down to the heart of spiritual maturity. So we need to know a lot about him. Uh, historical setting. Uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Ezra. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, contemporaries, they're actually companion books, quite possibly written by the same person. Ezra was a priest who led the second uh, wave of exiles returning back to Jerusalem. If you've been following along, the Jews have been exiled into slavery uh, by Babylon. Uh, The temple has been destroyed. The city has been leveled. All of the gates have been burned. Jerusalem is a big, giant heap of rubble, and all of the gifted people are gone. It's just a, it's a horrible place to be. And um, Babylon falls to the, the Persian Empire, the great Persian Empire, and now becomes the largest empire in the world. Fascinating empire. It is the first experiment in multiculturalism, and they got it right. They, I, it's amazing. They were so successful at being multicultural. And Cyrus, uh, the first king of the Persian Empire, he started the whole thing. He actually conquered the Babylonians. I don't know what it is about him, but he's the one that frees the Jews, the exiles. Cyrus the Great, the first empire, and the, the first emperor of the, of, the, of the Persian Empire. And I'm a history nerd. I've studied this. I've looked at this from a biblical perspective. I've looked at it from a historical, political perspective. It makes no sense whatsoever that Cyrus would free the Jews. It doesn't make political sense or historical sense. It only makes spiritual sense because God did it. It is the sovereignty of God that changed, I guess, Cyrus's heart and said, you are going to free the Jews. And, it, and, it, and this is the amazing thing about it is that it's also extra biblical. There's a, there's a, there's a the, the Brits have it, but there's the Cyrus seal. It's about this big. And it talks about it's Cyrus's actual decree where he frees the Jews and lets them go back and he gives them all of their money back. 
and all of their religious instruments, the menorah and the, and the dishes and the plates and the, everything that they needed for, to, to, to sacrifice. He gives it all back. And not only, it, it doesn't just stop with Cyrus, the great uh, Artaxerxes and Xerxes who's in uh, movie 300. They're, they're all on board. They're all supporting the Jews, even though that, that they're their slaves. And Nehemiah is in the empire. He is in the capital city of Susa, in modern-day Iran, a very long ways away from Jerusalem. And this is what he has to say. Um, okay, you guys want can I quiz you? All right. What are the, the three... Uh, Three major branches of uh, uh, political, social, religious uh, institutions in Israel. What are the three major offices? You remember? Prophet, king, and priest. Those are the three, right? So you're either like if you're if you're in leadership, if you are in, uh, if you have a role to play in the future vision of Israel, if you're an ancient Israelite, um, you're either a, you either fall into the prophet class, the priestly class, or um, the, the royal class. And um, prophets are the ones that hear from God. They tell the people what God is saying. They annoy the dickens out of the kings. Right? Uh, the royal class, the kings, uh, maybe one queen, they're the ones that um, take care of the people, make sure that justice is administrated. And then there's the priestly class, who are the ones that ask God to forgive the people's sins. They're the ones that communicate to God. Prophets communicate from God to the people, the priests communicate from the people to God, and then the king is in the mix, and uh, he's the one that's working there. Nehemiah, isn't, he's none of these. We've got to pay attention to Nehemiah. He's so unique. This book is so cool. We, there's secrets to it that, that an everyday person can understand. Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a prophet. Some people try to make him a prophet, but he's not a prophet. And he's not royalty. But he serves Artaxerxes, the most powerful man that had ever lived at the time. He, he runs the largest empire the world has ever seen. Um, unfortunately, we don't know enough about the Persian Empire, um, but it was massive and it was incredible. And um, uh, this point in history between the Persian Empire, there is a, a coming conflict with the West, with the Greek city-states. Uh, again, the movie 300, it, it illustrates the, this clash between the East and the West, between uh, democracy and um, uh, tyranny, I guess. But actually, the Persians were pretty cool, I, thought, I think. All right, so let's, let's learn a little bit more about Nehemiah, what he did. Nehemiah chapter 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah. And again, this is a long ways away, long journey. With some of the other men, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived in the exile 
and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those that have survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. All right, let's skip down to... Eight, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. This is what happens. The Jews have been unfaithful. They have been called to change the world. They're God's chosen people to bless the entire world. At the end of the service, we're going we're gonna to pray a little bit. I'm definitely going to pray for Israel because that is, the Bible says that, um, God will bless those that bless Israel, and those that curse Israel, God will curse. Israel is on our side. We are on Israel's side. If you're not a Jew, if you're a Christian, we have to pray for Israel. Major player. Um, okay. I will scatter you among the nations. So they all get scattered. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then if you are exiled people... Uh, at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of the servant and to the prayer of your servant who delight in re, uh, revering your name. Give your servant success today. By granting him favor in the presence of this man. So this is Nehemiah talking. He's actually praying. He's actually he's pushing into God because he's going to do something huge. He's going to do something very important. He's scared. The man is Artaxerxes. The most powerful man in the world. I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes when the wine was brought to him I took the wine and I gave it to the king all right this is an interesting job to have a, a cupbearer is actually the closest person to the king or the emperor because he eats his food he has a very unique, special job. His job is to make sure that the king doesn't get poisoned. And so before the king takes a drink out of his gold cup, Nehemiah drank first. Before Artaxerxes took a bite out of his sandwich, Nehemiah ate first. And so there's, um, and we, we know this through history, there is almost an intimate connection between the cupbearer and the king. They're, not only are they eating the same food, but there is a, a, a trust that gets built in because, but this, I mean, every lunch you're, you're, you're offering your life for the king, literally. It's, so it's a, there's, a, there's an interesting connection that happens, and specifically between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, this cupbearer, gets this bad news about his people. Actually, And also, did you know that Nehemiah was born in exile. He's never seen Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He's only heard stories. 
But like most Jews that have never been to Israel, there's something that draws them to Israel. It's like a homing beacon. They're like carrier pigeons. They, there's this, like this magnetic, magnetic pull that, that, that the Jewish people, they have to get to, the, to their homeland. And so Nehemiah hears the story of a, of a broken wall, and he begins to weep and begins to cry, and he has a heart for a place that he's never seen. And then he builds up the courage to talk to the king to say, let me go so that I can help. I had not been sad in, the pre- in his presence before. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a, he's a positive character. He's been serving this king in servitude, like, like I mean, drinking, you know, drinking this wine, never knowing when he's going to die. And he always has a good attitude about it. How would you feel if you were the cupbearer, never knowing when you're going to die? It's going to be my last drink. And Nehemiah always has a positive attitude, except for this day. I never had a, a negative attitude in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? Can this be nothing but sadness of heart? I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, would you... The king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back, if it pleased the king to send me? So I set a time. This, is, this doesn't happen. Why would you let your, your, your friend go? Why would you let your cupbearer, the person that you trust the most? And it's really kind of hard to see, but there is a, there's an intimacy here between Nehemiah and the king and the queen that we just don't, we kind of miss. But they were friends. They were close. And the king says, when do you take off? And not only does, Nehemiah, not only does the king let him go, he funds him. He gives him a escort, military escort, and then he gives them all the lumber that he needs to rebuild the city and specifically the walls. Who does this? It is God's favor. It is, this does not happen in history books, especially with kings who usually tend to be greedy, petty, and, you know, egomaniacs. So this is, this is, it's fascinating and it's true. This actually happened. We have record of it outside of the Bible. So, um, Nehemiah finally makes it to Jerusalem, and the, 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 the reports are right. The whole city is it's in rubble. The Babylonians did a really good job at destroying it. They, they destroyed the entire city. They tore down every, every uh, wall that they could. They burned every gate. There are, I forgot how many gates there are in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of them, and they all have really neat names. The only gate that did not get burned was the water gate. 
And it's not the, the water gate that Nixon had problems with, but uh, it, the water gate's the only one that didn't get burned. Even though like the walls around it got torn down, they just had this big giant wooden gate that never got burned. But the fish gate, the dung gate, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, the golden gate, uh, Damascus gate, they all got burned down. Uh, and then, so Nehemiah sneaks into the city, and he has never been there. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not royalty. Uh, he just has some money. He has some administrative skill. He is a leader. And he rallies a bunch of people that he does not know. And he says, it would probably be a good idea that we build a wall. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Ezra and the, and the last of the royalty, Zerubbabel, they built the temple. So the priest and the royalty, they actually rebuilt the temple. But this other strange character that doesn't fall into any specific category rebuilds the wall. Do you see the, the importance of this? He doesn't build a palace. He doesn't build a temple. He builds a wall. But the wall is so important. Who, uh, guess who um, the enemies of Israel are right now? Nobody. The Persians have subdued the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Babylonians. The Assyrians are long dead. There, really, there are no major enemies. There really isn't a need for a big giant wall. Yet, God has placed it on his heart to say, we need, to, we need to protect our temple. We need to build this buffer around the city, the holy city of God, around the temple. Let's do it. And for some reason, the people said, okay. Uh, Nehemiah is a great book when you go into a capital building campaign for churches. Because it, I, think, I think we used it when we did a campaign a while back. Uh, because it is it's starting over, it's starting fresh, it's finding a vision, and it is including everybody in the building process. And so Nehemiah recruits, not contractors, but families. And so entire families are given sections of the wall and specific gates to be rebuilt. So the Cohen family, they get the fish gate, and, I don't know, the Jones family, they get, they get the, the dung gate. And so everybody gets a specific gate, and they all begin to build. And as they are, as they are building up the walls, um, and this happens, whenever God gives you something to do, whenever you step into the will of God, whenever you surrender yourself to what is good, to what is holy, whenever you have committed yourself to Jesus, you will come into opposition. Stark opposition. Because the enemy of God does not want you to grow, does not want you to mature. If you have stepped across that line of faith, the enemy of God can't, I believe, and it's debatable, we can argue someday, once you stepped across that line of faith, I don't believe the enemy of God can get you back. 
I'm kind of, well, this week, I'm kind of once saved, always saved. I might change my, week, my mind next week, but this week, I'm going to side with the Presbyterians, and I'm going to say, once saved, always saved. Because once you've tasted the goodness of God, why would you want to go back? So, he's lost. If you have stepped across the line of faith, the devil is lost. So the only thing that he can do now, since he can't get you into hell, the only thing he can do now is make you depressed, and to make you embarrassed, and to ridicule you, and to make sure that you're not speaking life. Hmm? So that's his only strategy, is to make sure that you're silent and depressed and ridiculed. And this is what he does. This is the strategy that the enemy implies, it institutes on, on Nehemiah. And he says, uh, this is what happens. Chapter 4. When Sanballat heard, uh, Sanballat, I believe they call him the Horonite. There's Sanballat, and then there is Tobiah and Gershon, the, the, the Arab. Sanballat is a Samaritan. If you've been following along in the history, Samaritans are kind of like Jack Jews. They're kind of, they, 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 they look like Jews, they talk like Jews, uh, they just worship at a different place. They, they, they're family, but they're just kind of not quite family. It's complicated, right? But Sanballat, he's basically he's family. He basically, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's in the lineage of Abraham. And then Tobiah, is, he's called a, another critic, is called an Ammonite. But uh, scholars and myself believe that he was half Jewish. And then there is Geshem the Arab. So these three critics. When Sambal heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and with the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the city wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stone back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Amorite, who's actually, put a little note, Tobiah the Jew, too, or the half-Jew. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side said, what are they building? Even if a fox climbs on it, uh, it, it, it would break down the, walls of the, st- uh, the wall of the stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on them. This is Nehemiah responding. All right, so what's going on? Who are the enemy? The enemy is internal. Nehemiah is an outsider, sort of. He is he's a child of God. He's gifted. He's smart. He's passionate about God and God's place. And he's trying to do something good. And he's got three guys coming up against him. And it's not Syria. It's not Egypt. It's not Babylon. It's the guys from home and an Arab. And they are ridiculing them. They are making fun of them. They're saying, you, build a, you built this, you got halfway up. You know what? If we, did, if we put a fox on this wall, it's going to fall over. You guys, they're, they're laughing at them. And whenever we begin to build something with God, he's going to send people, the enemy of God is going to send people into our lives 
to mock us. Start going to church, Uncle Bob's going to start making fun of you. Oh, are you one of those born-again Christians? Right. What do you do? You keep on building. You ignore them. Nehemiah just ignores them. And he begins to pour into families. He gives them tools that they need to continue to build. And they build, and they build, and they get higher than halfway up. They begin to restore the walls. Um, like Again, like one, one family has the fish gate. One family has the dung gate. How many people want the dung gate? What's the dung gate for? It's a very specific purpose in the dung gate to get that crap out. The fish gate might not be too bad. There's the sheep gate. All kinds of cool gates that we could work on in our lives. That's what we're going to just let that sit for a second because I'm going to encourage you. Like, like this year, 2017. Where's God wanting you to build, you and your family? Are, are, are you dealing with ridicule? Are, you, is people mo- are, are they mocking you because you're being faithful? What is it? What's going on? Be, be attentive. Get to be like Nehemiah. Nehemiah, is, he's discerning what's going on. He's hearing these negative things from the people that should be helping him, and he's like ignoring them. And then it goes from ridicule and, and mocking to violence. Because now Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshen, the Arab, now they are threatening violence. Does Nehemiah give up? Does he say, you know what, families, it's too dangerous? It was just, we better be safe than sorry. No, he doesn't. He says, families, get your trowel and get your sword. This is interesting. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if I have it right here. I do. Uh, this is 4.17. Uh, we're building the wall. Those who carry materials did their work with their hands, and they held a weapon in the other. And each of them, each of the builders, wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely spread out from, from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Yeah. Okay, but, but is that, doesn't that seem like it's a contradiction? Get your sword. Be ready to fight. You have to build and fight at the same time. And God's going to fight for us. Well, if God's going to fight for us, why do I need a sword? He wants us to do both. Good. Can't have that passive, you know what, God's just going to do whatever he's going to do. I'm just going to be in God's will. I, I'm not going to be proactive. I'm not going to push forward in faith. I'm just going to set back and I'm not going to work because if God really wants it done, then God's going to do it. He doesn't need me. Have you ever prayed stupid prayers like that? <laughs> or have you ever done that to other people? There's a, there's a cynical, nasty spirit among Christians that kills. Nehemiah is facing off against his own brothers who want to kill him. 
his own brothers and the Arab. They want to kill him now because they don't like this wall that's going up. It's like this self-destructive attitude towards God's presence. It's the enemy of God. And if Nehemiah would just, if he would have sat there and listened to the cynical, nasty comments, if he would have let that God into him, he would have stopped building. He wouldn't have encouraged families to fight. He wouldn't have encouraged families to say, you know what, don't let those, don't let those idiots get to you. Like, the idiots are the believers. Uh, you know, I would say this year, there's a lot of things that we can do to, to grow, to become more mature. And let's just be honest. Most of us in this room are Christians. We're believers. We've stepped across the line of faith. But maybe we're a little bit stagnant. Um, bad company corrupts good character. And bad company isn't always as being around sinners. Bad company can be Christians. This is what Nehemiah is saying. So if you are around Christians that are negative, cynical, whining, if they're always tearing down and not building up, I'd say change your friends. Nothing good comes from cynical behavior. Um, God convicted me, I don't know, a couple years ago. I still deal with it. But like, I would, like, and, I, and I still do this, and I, I'm working on it. I'm being really transparent with you all. I work on this. I have to work on it because it still creeps back in. But I like to be cynical about other faiths and other denominations. I like to pick on Baptists. I like to make fun of Presbyterians. I like to make fun of Pentecostals. Even though I'm a Pentecostal, well, I'm a charismatic. But you see, I get all these labels and you begin to pick on people, right? You, my family... My church family, people that I love, that I allow to give me feedback, came to me and said, you need to quit picking on the other denominations. I'm like, why? It's fun. <laughs> they're, they're wrong, and I'm right. Hmm? Uh, it's just, it doesn't build up a wall. It only tears down walls when we begin to pick off other people, especially our brothers and sisters. So I was guilty of that. I was a sand ballot. I was a Tobiah. God convicted me of it, and I repented of it. Still like to make fun of Baptists. Can't help myself. <laughs> but I love them. They're the body. Yeah. I, can't do, I can't do faith without them. Yes. I can't do church without them. Same with Presbyterians. Okay. And we just have to be, you know, we just, they're the body of Christ. you imagine life without Billy Graham? He doesn't even speak in tongues. Must not be going to heaven. All right. Our God will fight with us, but you've got to have your sword. Chapter 5 is interesting. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying... We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. The others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vine, vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Okay, this is, so the people that, have been, that are actually, that picked up the stones, began to actually do the hard work, 
the families that, that heeded the call of Nehemiah, this guy from the outside who's not a priest, who's not a prophet, he's not royalty, they said, you know what, he's probably right. Maybe we should build this wall. Hey, are you a Nehemiah by chance? Well, I'm not like Pastor Josh. I'm not a priest. I'm not a worshiper like Pastor John. I'm not a prophet. I'm not like Pastor Larry, but he's royalty. (laughs) So therefore, if I'm not in any of the offices, if I don't fall into an office, then God must not be able to use me. No, you're, you're a Nehemiah. Isn't God cool that he doesn't fall into any of these categories that we fall into? He just uses people that are passionate and that are gifted. Yes. Nehemiah is a politician. Can God use politicians? I didn't think so. <laughs> but he uses this cupbearer to, to save a nation, to bring in discernment, to bring in wisdom that wasn't there. To get rid of the negative voices that, that had infected a, an entire community. Clean, cleaned house. All of these people. Um, some of them were apothecaries. Perfume people. Like got their hands dirty. Started picking up big giant boulders and rocks and beginning to set them in and, and concrete and stuff. They didn't have concrete. Mortar. They were putting together wood gates with bars and getting blisters when, you know, they had soft hands because they were working with perfumes. Others were goldsmiths. A Jewish goldsmith. Imagine that. It's a joke, folks. Come on. <laughs> um, accountants and Musicians were doing hard work, getting their hands dirty. The only ones that didn't were the royalty. They're the ones that the Bible says they, didn't, they wouldn't uh, strain their neck. They wouldn't get their hands dirty. And guess what? The kingship doesn't get restored after the wall is built. Zerubbabel was the last royal leader He wasn't even a king. He's the one that that brought in 42,000 of the exiles in Ezra, the book of Ezra. Um, Before that, the last king, the last legitimate king in Judah uh, was Jehoiachin. He was the grandfather of Zerubbabel. And he was the last one. And, And the guys of royal blood, they wouldn't get their hands dirty. They wouldn't lift a stone to protect their city. And that the kingship does not get restored. Israel moves into a theocracy. The office of, of a king is gone until Jesus comes back or until Jesus is born. Isn't that fascinating? And what chapter 5 is saying is like these, not only were these families, and there was one family, there was one, one father that had a bunch of daughters, and they were given a specific gate. All the daughters built the gate, a bunch of women built the gate. Cool. Women, perfume guys, jewelry makers, musicians. I mean, no wonder everybody was making fun of them. They probably didn't know what they're doing. 
But they did it, and they strapped on a sword. Not only did they do that, they invested their time and their money. And you ready for this? They went into debt, and they mortgaged their fields and their houses to build this wall. Who does that? Like this wall was so important to this community, even though that there was no impending you know, nation that was going to take over, it was so important that they were all in. They mortgaged their houses. You know what else they did? They, <laughs> they sold their kids into slavery so they could build this wall. And I know what you're thinking right now. That is an amazing idea. <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of debt. I, that is an amazing biblical principle, selling my children into slavery to pay off some debt. That's, that's wisdom there. <laughs> but think, can you imagine that? Could you imagine? I mean, this is a wall we're talking about with some gates. And entire communities go into debt, sell their children into slavery, put on weapons, learn a skill they didn't know before, sucked it up, got splinters, bled, because it was important, because it protected the temple, because it protected God's holy place. And guess, by the way, who put these families into major debt and servitude? Guess who did it? Guess who did it? They're brothers and sisters. <laughs> did you see the madness in this? The ones that put them into debt over their eyeballs and, and put their kids into slavery were Jews. Jews taking advantage of Jews when they should have been building the wall with them, the ones that were all in. It's, isn't that horrible? And I'll tell you, it's not much different today. It really isn't. We've, uh, I know, we've, we've refinanced our building several times. And the ones that get me, oh, should I do this? Oh, let's just do it. I'm not making fun of the denominations. But the worst are the Christian credit unions. The Christian credit unions. Our, our, our mortgage is not with a Christian institution. It's with a secular bank. You want to know Why? Because I got a better rate than I did with the Christians. And here's the, the, here's the sales pitch that I got from the Christians. These credit unions. We are a ministry. I even had one guy who says, I, I am a minister like you. I'm like, no, you're not. You're a banker. And you can't even compete with the world. You can't compete with the world. So why are you going to put us into debt? You see, there's no difference, folks. We have to have discernment. Sometimes the ones that we're fighting are our brothers and sisters. And Nehemiah knew this. I don't know what it was with this guy. But he had so much wisdom. He knew that, like, I don't know, why is it that, we, we, that we're going to make a, the world sign contracts, but when we go into business with our brothers and sisters, we just take it, we just, we don't? They were being taken advantage of. And Nehemiah steps in. This cupbearer, this governor from a pagan Empire steps in and he says, what is a matter with you guys? I bet you money he had an army behind him because these Jews backed down. 
And they got, the, they got the kids out of slavery, and they said, you know what, you're right. We won't, we won't charge these interest rates. We'll give it all back. And they did. Isn't that crazy? Because of the courage of this discerning man that was not a priest, that was not a prophet, that was not royalty. It was just a man. It gets better. All right, I got to read this part. Okay, so uh, the, the ridicule didn't work, the mocking didn't work, the threat of violence didn't work, they built the wall, it looked awesome, and um, Nehemiah is up there walking along the wall, he's making sure all the details are being taken care of, and Sam Ballot, the Jack Jew, Tobiah, the half Jew that should have known better, that was actually married into royalty, that should have built the wall himself, but it was too greedy to do so, he wasn't willing to sacrifice, Oh, by the way, Nehemiah didn't take a paycheck. And then the Arab. The Arab guy keeps on coming in here. Ridicule didn't work. Violence didn't work. And then they try the back door. Oh, Nehemiah, come off your wall. Quit paying attention to the details. Let's talk about this. Four times they try to do this. But Nehemiah was on task. He knew what God had told him. We talk about prophecy quite a bit. Because the Bible tells us that the, the, the prophecy is used to build and encourage the church to you. To, we're, you know, and in some aspect, we're all to be prophetic voices to each other, to encourage each other. And to, how many people are confused what God's will is for your life? It's okay. If you don't know what God's will is, it's okay. But maybe someday it, you'll know through a prophetic word from somebody. Maybe God will speak to you and you'll, things will become clear. You'll know what God's will is for your life. All right, check this out. Nehemiah knew what he was supposed to be doing. Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arab guy, they're like, come off that wall. I want you to step down from what God's called you to do. You see what's going on? Ridicule and violence didn't work. The next strategy is distraction. He's distracting them. Come off that wall. Let's talk. Nehemiah's like, no, I'm busy. Leave me alone. I, I, God has called me to this. I'm going to focus on this because this is what the prophetic word told me to do. This is what's burning inside of my heart. I am here. And Samballot and Tobiah say, come off that wall. Let's, ready? Let's pray together. <laughs> but Listen. Uh, 6, uh, verse 8. I sent them this reply. Nothing like that, what you are saying, is happening. You are making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak to do the work and will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaniah, son of Delilah. Delilah, I don't know. It's not Delilah, not that Delilah. 
the son of Metabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him. Okay, can, do you, can you do that? If somebody calls you into church, into a prayer meeting, are, do you have the strength of character to know that it's from God? It must be from God because it seems so religious. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he, ready for this? But that he prophesied against me. He prophesied against him. Because Tobiah and Samballot hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. What was the sin? The sin was coming off the wall. Could you, what he's saying is it would have been a sin for him to go into church and to pray with these guys. That was the sin because he was called to the wall. He was not called into the church to go to a prayer meeting. He was called to the wall to protect families. I like prayer meetings, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah, Sambalat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to, to intimidate me. So the entire office, the, the prophetic, uh, was the, the, the office of the prophetic was an actual career. It was an industry. There were prophets all over the place. Some were good, some were bad. But this entire prophetic industry was against Nehemiah. I thought, Pastor Josh, the prophets were good. They are good. Prophetic is needed in the church. Don't get me wrong but it can also be twisted and manipulated. Because clearly it says here that they prophesied against Nehemiah, against God's will. And the entire community did. It's just nuts. It just, it's nuts. But to them it seemed like it was spiritual. No, they needed some practical common sense to build the wall before the enemies came. I could probably keep going, huh? I probably should wrap it up. See, I should have got the chair for first service. So something about the chair. Today. I got to wrap it up. All right, so do you guys get the idea? 
I'd say, as we, as, we, as we wrap it up, it's extremely important, extremely practical. What we learned from Nehemiah is the importance, the critical importance of discernment. Are, are, do, you, do you know God's voice? It's really, it's, you've got to know God's voice. How do you do in spiritual environments? How, do you, how can you tell if you are in a religious environment? And in this sense, religion's bad. Because religion controls, it's mean, and it's manipulative. And it's sarcastic, and it's condescending, and it wants you to compete against each other. So, are you able to discern being in a religious environment or a life-giving environment where there's the peace and the presence of the Holy Spirit? Can you discern between the two? I'll tell you the telltale here. Um, If you are in an environment of believers and you're not quite sure, listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Look, just like filter out all the warm fuzzies because there's probably somebody, you know, playing the guitar. It seems really sweet and spiritual. You, you need to listen to the words that are coming out of the mouth. Are they making fun of Baptists? Right? Are they mocking? Are they cynical? Right? This is poison, folks. Or are they encouraging families to build up walls? Are they saying you need to be spiritual and you need to be practical? You need to have, you need to have a trial in one hand where you're taking care of the practical things of life. You're doing your budget. You're paying attention to the details. You're making sure that your kids are okay. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're being an adult. And then you have your sword, the Word of God, on the other hand, is both. We have to be... Could you imagine if, uh, if Nehemiah decided, you know what, I'm just going to go in and pray about it. Should I really build this wall? I'm just going to go pray about it. I, I, mean, I remember asking people to do stuff for church work. And it's like, you know what, let me pray about it. Like, you want to pray about it? Well, don't pray too long, son. Is, is your saying, I want to pray about it, is that just a, a way of saying no? Because if, if you're just saying no, just tell me no, right? Oh, no, no, let's not do this religious Christianese talk. Your no's be no's and your yes be yes. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Just don't tell me you're going to pray about it. Prayer is vital. It's crucial. It's important. We all need to be in our prayer closets. We all need to be hitting our knees. But there are times when we need to be building a wall and quit using God to run from God. Amen. All right, let's get the band come up here. I'm done. Woo! Yeah.
All right. Let's have the ushers come to the front, too. And uh, let's get everybody to stand. And um, we're going to just, let's just pray for ourselves real quick. But I'm saying real quick because I, I want to get the attention off of ourselves and onto other things. Because we're going to start the new year off with prayer, but we're also going to start it off with action. So as we uh, enter into prayer, if you want to write this down, maybe as like what, like what area, what wall is God calling you to to work on this year? What area of the wall? Is it the? Does God want you and your family to work on the dung gate? Like that's like the worst, right? But some of us need to work on the dung gate because we got a bunch of crap in our life. It needs to. We need to clear it out. We need to clean it up. And it's, it's hard, and it's messy, but God's calling us to do it. Maybe you did that last year. Maybe you got your act together last year. And maybe God wants you to work on the fish gate. He wants you to become fishers of men, where he wants you to take action in bringing in a good catch. Maybe God wants you to, to work on the, the, the sheep gate. What is it that you need to sacrifice this year? What action do you need to take? Because God has blessed you so much. Maybe God wants you to work on the golden gate where you just, you just need to be captivated by the glory of God. Maybe God wants you to work on the water gate, the only gate that wasn't burned. It's the word of God that you need to focus on. You need to get that into your, you need to consume the word of God. So where do you need to be with you and your family? What practical thing do you need to put your trial to? What is it? I would suggest writing it down, like, at, by the end of the service. Write it down, because I think maybe God's going to speak to you. He'll, he'll tell you where you need to focus. But you've got to pay attention to the practical things in addition to the spiritual things. So let's pray for you this year. And then we're going to move on to the bigger picture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an incredible 2016 and we are thankful and grateful for the hard times and the good times, for the loss and the disappointment and the victories and the wins, God. We give them all to you. They're all from you, God. So, God, I pray right now that we will learn from our mistakes, that we will move on into a better future. And we give you thanks. And we give you all the honor for 2016. And as we move into 2017, God, is there's a new year and we're starting a new project that's going to take a long time. I pray that you give us the resolve to stay on the wall until it's done. And I pray that no one will talk us off that wall, that we won't let cynicism and negativity get under our skin that we won't fear violence or threat of death, that we will be vigilant and working hard, both with our trial and our spear. And God, when, we, when those sneaky forces come into the back door, God, I pray that we will have the character and the discernment to know which is your voice and which is not. And when Sanballat tries to sneak in and when Tobias starts to steal our money, God, we say no in the name of Jesus. And God, right now, we pray for our families. 
God, we need you. Our daughters need you. Our sons need you. So strengthen our family and may this church be the catalyst for strong families this year. Strengthen our church, God. May it continue to fulfill its mission and its calling to be a voice among all the nations, to transform families and this community, God. Let's help us to continue to, to, to meet our mission. And we pray for our city. I pray that you will bless the city of Claremont. Pray that you will raise up governors like Nehemiah, God. God, we need Nehemiahs in this city. God, we need Nehemiahs at Granite Creek to work in the ministry, God. So I just pray that you you encourage our Nehemiahs. And God, right now, we just pray for Southern California. We pray for the area that's the Inland Empire, that that we may reach as much as we possibly could reach, that, that we will become fishers of men, that we will lead people in through your gates with thanksgiving into your courts with praise this coming year. We pray for the area, God, that it repents and turns its heart back to you. Give us a heart of flesh, Lord. And God, we also pray for California. California has been marked by God. We've had so many revivals, so many outpourings, so many breakthroughs in this cool state called California. And we ask for another one, God. Give us another another Azusa, God. Another third wave. Another outpouring of your Holy Spirit, God. Just release more, God. And we pray for our great nation. We pray that it will repent and turn its heart back to you, God. We pray that you will just restore the values that this country has been built on. We pray for Israel. I pray that you would just, I pray that we will bless Israel as individuals, as a country, God. I pray that we will stand beside Israel. God, I pray right now that you will protect them physically. You also protect them spiritually. You protect them from the inside snakes that want to undo the walls. God, we pray right now that you will rebuild a physical temple on the Temple Mount, God. Bless Israel, God. Bless those who bless Israel. Because Israel is the blessing to the world. That's what your word says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is done through Israel. So bless, bless, bless Israel. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.